According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Luke chapter 11 this morning. Luke chapter 11. We have concluded the issues on prayer. Have we not? Yes, we have. And uh, we're ready now for episode 11, the accused connection with Beelzebub. One of the things that's always bothered me in my uh, lifelong quest to find a Bob in the Bible, there's Beelzebub. And I wonder if uh, Beelzebub takes a nickname, would he be called Bob? All right. He was casting out a demon, reading from Luke 11:14, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding a son, uh, of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All right, there's more to that. Actually, that takes us down through verse 20. Uh, The context though is going to take us all the way down through verse 36 pretty lengthy and uh, we're going to focus on different aspects of it here starting this morning any of that sound familiar we've covered much of it already that's right and this is uh, a revisiting of previous issues that had come up in the galilean ministry that once again find the find themselves being revisited in the perean and judean ministry of jesus and so this is uh, something that we'll have to do Uh, as a part of our harmonization efforts in coordinating the different passages and where they are. We'll be doing that this morning. Before we do that, though, let's take time for silent prayer. Make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come... Before your throne of grace this morning, uh, unworthy to be here, and yet thankful and rejoicing that your grace has, uh, it is your grace, Father, that uh, makes us to be adequate for such things, Father. It is your grace that invites us into your counsel. It is your grace that permits us to to read and to uh, study and understand your scriptures. Father, it is all grace that allows us to present ourselves approved before your throne of grace, and we thank you for the grace that provides for us here on this day. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for the uh, concerns and cares and and fears and struggles of daily life uh, to be set aside, Father, so that every thought can be uh, taken captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Turn our eyes firmly upon Him and uh, take hold of our attention as we study Your truth here this morning. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's uh, begin then with a bit of the harmony that we need to lock into place. This episode revisits a number of previous accusations. Not the first time Jesus has been accused of using the power of demons to cast out demons. So this episode revisits a number of previous accusations and consequent teachings. It's interesting. Each time an accusation was leveled, Jesus Christ utilized that as an occasion for teaching. The consequence of the accusation became a teaching opportunity. So point one in the outline. This episode revisits a number of previous accusations and consequent teachings. And I'm just going to list them for you in a sequence here. Seven of these as subpoints. First of all, when we're looking at verses 14 and 15 with the casting out of a demon, the amazement of the crowds. In Luke 11:14 through 15, we find our parallel two places, 
Matthew 9 and Matthew 12. And I hope that we can take the time to just think our way through this, look at it ourselves, so that when friends or enemies or co-workers or neighbors or whoever uh, starts to feel like these uh, these uh, parallel accounts are actually contradictory, you can stop them and say, no, no, wait a minute here. We're talking about something that happened repeatedly, and it's not just a difference between different authors like Matthew and Luke or Mark and Luke. Uh, this one is, is important because it shows that even the same author, Matthew, records an event in chapter 9 and a subsequent and similar event in chapter 11. So you can show them, the, or in chapter 12 rather, you can show them the, the chain from chapter 9 to chapter 12 and say, see, look at that. It's the same author clearly demonstrating different events, even though they are rather similar in their, in their approach. So hold your finger there at Luke 11. Let's look back to Matthew. Matthew 9.34. And you'll note the the context for this here in chapter 9. Very uh, shortly after the uh, calling of Matthew and then the the, uh, synagogue official with a daughter. The woman with a hemorrhage for 12 years. A lot of things here in chapter 9. The the blind men on the road calling out to him as the son of David. In any event, this is the, the Galilean ministry context for this. And uh, as they were going out, verse 32, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, uh, pay attention to that, we're going to comment on it here shortly. The Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And uh, then Jesus doesn't stop. He doesn't attack him. He doesn't dispute. He just keeps going because that's his purpose. He is actually in between one engagement and another engagement. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and so forth. So there's the context there in Matthew 9. Just three chapters later in Matthew 12. A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Notice the difference? First guy was just mute, this guy's blind and mute, was brought to Jesus so that the mute man spoke and saw. The physical afflictions were not physical afflictions as we think of them. It was not a medical condition. It was a demonic condition, a spiritual condition that had physiological effects. That's something that uh, the doctors of this world, uh, uh, I imagine, would have a hard time figuring out as they're running their blood tests and trying to figure out what's going on and trying to find cures and so forth, if, if all they're doing is approaching something physiologically. What if the root cause is not physiological? What if the physiological effects are simply symptomatic of a spiritual affliction? How's a doctor going to find that? In any event, that's a rabbit trail. Let's get off of it. The, uh, the demon was cast out, and the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, again, the Pharisees, uh, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And by the way, when we taught this before, back in chapter 9 and 12, um, you understand the difference between Beelzebul and Beelzebub is uh, one of spelling and one of transliteration. And uh, I think we gave you those notes at the time. I'm not going to go back into it here this morning. So, not a big deal, actually, but it is something you examine when you examine manuscripts and uh, the different traditions of, uh, of spelling. So, there's your parallel. And it's important that we see that now it's happening again in Luke chapter 11. And you say, well, is this the same thing being told now, retold in a different way, in a different setting, or is it a subsequent event? And it's important when you see that, well, it happened in Matthew 9, it happened again in Matthew 12, and so it's natural to say this is probably an accusation that was leveled against him uh, repeatedly, over and over and over again, more than just the two times Matthew records, more than just the three times that Matthew and Luke record, probably dozens of times. Everywhere he went, it was a common um, sour grapes kind of uh, uh, complaint by the Pharisees that, oh, well, he's only doing that because he's... Um, he's a servant of Beelzebub, see. And so we don't view it as contradictory, we view it as complementary, and that becomes important also. All right, secondly then, 
back to Luke 11. When we read in verse 16, others to test him were demanding a sign from heaven. We find the parallel to this is also in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, the parallel to this comes in a uh, passage that follows with what we had read just a moment ago. And you have the notes for this already in Galilean Ministry, episode number 25. And I know we passed out those notes. I think there's still some out there, the packet of Galilean Ministry notes. And episode 25 is the episode where Jesus gives an answer to a demand for a sign. And so you see it here. What's going to be interesting, though, is in Luke 11, what some people try to say was, really just a, a duplication of, of uh, Mark's record or a duplication of Matthew's record. Uh, and then they will try to say, well, Luke was simply confused as to the timing or Luke was confused as to the setting, all right, which is uh, flies in the face of the, the uh, forward to the uh, Gospel of Luke. Luke was, of all the Gospel authors, Luke was the one that was a trained historian. Luke was the one that actually researched it. Luke was the one that was furthest from the events that took place. And Luke is the one that actually took the time to interview the uh, observers and to actually document his sources. So I don't, I don't agree with the statements that oh, Luke was confused to the setting or the, tiding, uh, the timing and so forth. I think it's the experts that are confused uh, when they don't understand the harmony of the Gospels and they don't understand the parallel accounts for what they are. So Matthew chapter 12 was one episode, which was Galilean. Luke chapter 11 is a subsequent episode, which is Judean. And then we don't have, uh, we don't have a problem with it. So if you have your notes, you can turn there. What you will note, though, is you're going to see this come up again, but you're going to see it come up in different orders, all right, in different orders. If you just look at your paragraph headings in Matthew 12, that may be a clue for you also. Because the uh, we already read in verse 24 about the Pharisees and their sour grapes about uh, casting out demons. And then Jesus taught them about a kingdom divided against itself and Satan casting out Satan and so forth. And he also spoke about um, binding the strong man. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So all that teaching on angelic conflict, that is angelic conflict teaching right there about uh, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit and about demons coming in and taking possession and so forth. So notice the order. The accusation about Beelzebub, the kingdom divided against kingdom, and then uh, a little bit lower down, when you get to all the way down to verse 38 then, you have, um, we want to see a sign, and he says, uh, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Uh, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah the prophet. So just pay attention to the order there, because it's different here in Luke. And that becomes significant as well. Not uh, of a contradiction or not of a problem, not of sloppy history on Luke's part, but on the fact that Luke recorded a separate event that did, in fact, take the subject matter in a different order. All right. The third parallel then. Verses 17 through 23. Luke 11, 17 through 23 is parallel to Matthew 12, 25 through 30. Also... Parallel in the Mark record to Mark 3, 23 through 27. And you have this in your notes under Galilean ministry, episode number 24, where Jesus was accused of blasphemy. Galilean ministry, episode 24. So in the Luke order, as we're taking the Luke order, verses 14 and 15, verse 16, verses 17 through 23, in these subpoints, we're following the Luke order. And we'll, we'll track it all the way down through verse 36. But you're going to see when we look at the parallel records that the order is scrambled a bit. Because we just went from Galilean ministry episode 25 and we backed up to Galilean ministry, uh, ministry episode 24. Do you see how that went backwards? And it inversed the order. Okay, Even within episodes that are repeated, the order is going to be scrambled, and you'll see that too, because the Galilean ministry 25 actually comes up a couple of times, three times. And uh, you'll see that it's in a reversed order. 
Again, the accusation of blasphemy is interesting. Uh, the, uh, the claim of demonic involvement is interesting. Uh, Luke does not go into the realm of the unpardonable sin like Matthew did, uh, which is good. That means I don't have to answer questions like that here this morning, <laughs> like we did back then. Um, but here you have it. All right, verses uh, 17 and following. He knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Very similar, almost identical language. Uh, and so we're not going to develop it thoroughly this morning. We're not going to develop it much at all here this morning because you have the notes. And you have the notes back in GM 24, Galilee Ministry Episode 24. And if you want further follow-up on that, uh, go get those notes and read through it. I think it's, what I do want to point out, though, is the fact that a lot of people misread this. And they assume that Satan's kingdom is not divided against himself. That's not the logic Jesus is employing. He's not saying here, oh, I can't be doing that because a divided kingdom falls and Satan's is not a divided kingdom. That's not what he says. You'll note again, a kingdom divided against itself, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. The truth is Satan's kingdom is a divided kingdom. It is divided against himself and it is laid waste in the sense that the destruction is simply awaiting the unfolding in time, but the outcome is not in doubt. If Satan also is divided against uh, himself, and this is a first-class condition assumed to be true, how will his kingdom stand? The answer to that rhetorical question is it can't. It can't and it won't. It is doomed to fall, and Jesus Christ is the kingdom that will endure for all eternity. That's one of the things that... Uh, when we studied in Daniel chapter 10 and we saw the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, we saw that there are fallen angels that have sovereignty over earthly nations. And that interaction between the angelic realm and the human realm is important to recognize because if, uh, if you have your faith in human government, then you are placing your faith in something that's controlled by satanic forces. I, I would call that a misplaced uh, application of faith. <laughs> All right. But in that passage, the prince of Greece was coming to wage war against the prince of Persia. Something that uh, secular history, human historians record as the victories of Alexander the Great over uh, the Persian Empire. Right. And uh, secular historians, human historians that record human battles in human history, uh, they don't very frequently describe the uh, demons or the fallen angels that were empowering their conquests. Why was it that Alexander defeated the Persians? Well, earthly historians will try to come up with different earthly reasons. And when they do, they're telling only a fraction of the story. The book of Daniel tells us that the prince of Greece was destroying the prince of Persia. And that's a, a vivid illustration for us of the kingdom divided against itself. See, <clears throat> whereas Satan has the overall sovereignty over his network, underneath that is an awful lot of chaos and infighting and rebellion. All right. And, it's, and when you understand the dif difference between Satan's fall and Adam's fall, some of that starts to make more sense. Because Adam's fall was a federal headship where all the human race has fallen in Adam. Satan's fall, however, was something different. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, but every angel that rebelled, rebelled in their own accountability, for their own volition, for their own reasons. And many of those reasons are self-exaltation, just like Satan was involved in self-exaltation. So uh, if the prince of Greece is trying to exalt himself over the prince of Persia, that's, uh, that's what you get. If Beelzebul is going to exalt himself over Abaddon or Apollyon or uh, Satan or anybody else, that's what you're going to get, a divided kingdom. Anyway, stay tuned for more on this because in 2 Corinthians we have an extensive angelology, uh, demonology, and Satanology that will have to be developed in order to uh, complete our studies of that book. All right, the next section, Luke 11, 24 through 26. Luke 11, 24 through 26. And our parallel once again returns back to Matthew 12, but it's a little bit later in Matthew 12, and we're back to ministry 25 again. Notice that, verses 43 through 45. So we had a parallel with Matthew 12, 38, and then we went to Matthew 12, 25 through 30, and now we're up to Matthew 12, 43 through 45. 
So you'll see the scrambling of the uh, of the verses there. I'm just talking about looking at Matthew 12 for our reference. 12:24, 12:38. Here's 12:25 through 30. Here's 12:43 through 45. Whereas in Luke, it's all in a straight sequence. We also notice the uh, distinctions here between episode 25, where we backed up to episode 24. Now we're back to episode 25 again. All right, verses 24 through 26. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, it's interesting. An unclean spirit in need of rest. Don't you find that fascinating? An unclean spirit in need of rest. And the problem is when he goes out of a man, that's where he um, cannot find his rest. Inside the man, he's at rest. What kind of rest? Physical rest? Emotional rest? What kind of emotions do unclean spirits have? (laughs) Spiritual rest of a piece of uh, unclean spirit mind. What, what is this? Okay, we'll study it. But note the link of water. When it's absent from a physical host, it's called a waterless place. I don't claim that I have all the understanding of it, but the, link, the links between demons and water are interesting. And the uh, parallel between water and the abyss is critical when you understand what is it that forms the dimension, uh, the dimensional portal between this physical universe and the abyss, the, uh, the realm of Sheol, the underworld of Hades. And why is it that uh, the term abyss is applied both of the underworld and of the deep, as in uh, earthly oceans and seas and so forth? There's a reason and uh, why is it the legion was terrified of being cast into the abyss and then the herd of swine plunged into the into the water okay anyway we'll we'll develop this more but um <clears throat> the link between water is interesting because what is the body composed of water absolutely bob can you close those doors for me i don't know if they're distracting to uh, people sitting here but they're distracting to me all right So the combination of water, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. So there's a benefit to the soul when the demon is gone. When the demon is gone, the soul has an opportunity to uh, be refreshed, has an opportunity to be restored like a uh, maybe a hard drive that gets reformatted or something, right? <laughs> uh, an operating system that gets a fresh install because the virus has been removed or something like that. <clears throat> so the times of affliction are uh, times of disorder. They're times of clutter. They're times of darkness. And with the demon gone, there's an opportunity for the soul for some housekeeping in the soul. The problem is, is if that soul is still unregenerate, what you need to do before the demon can come back is is get this guy saved. (laughs) All right. Because so long as they're an unbeliever, they're vulnerable. And when the demon comes back, he has no problem coming back in. He can walk right in the front door. He owns the place. It's his home as far as he's concerned. The only uh, defense against this uh, intruder from coming in is to put a strong man in that house. Which would either be, some people teach it as the universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I believe the strong man actually is in Christ. The person is saved. They are, uh, Christ is in them. Or we say in the church age, you are positionally truth in Christ. In any event, the state of the regenerate across the dispensations belongs to God himself and is no longer eligible for the unclean spirit to take up their abode. All right, I will return to my house. You see how possessive he is? Return to my house. And what happens when multiple demons start fighting over the same house? If it's a nice house. See, is there room? Well, legion. 
who knows how many demons that was. I mean, a, Ro- a Roman legion comprised of 6,000 soldiers. And, you know, was he taking that name just as a nickname, or were there literally 6,000 demons all packed in there? How many demons did Mary Magdalene have? And different aspects there. All right. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. I find this to be so interesting. And when we do teach the thorough demonology, we're going to describe the fact that God in grace will allow portions of rest. The human gets rest when the demon's gone looking for rest. And then the demon comes back. And it's interesting when it comes back, it's worse than it was before. Absolutely worse. Seven times in this pattern. Seven times worse than it was before. And so uh, different aspects on this. I <clears throat> think a lot about Gary these days. It's been a year now. And the, uh, the issues with Gary and his own demons and his own addictions, see, and the struggles with the drugs and the different things. And he get free and it was a time of for the house to be swept back in order kind of thing. I'm not saying Gary was demon possessed. No, no, no. Don't, don't get me wrong on that. But looking at the cocaine addiction as an affliction comparable to a, a, a demon. I use the term demon metaphorically there. Um, and every time you go back into darkness, that's what I'm illustrating. Uh, every time where you get, kind of get a break from the, from the enslavement and then you go back to enslavement again, uh, it's worse. It's absolutely worse. It's deeper, it's darker, and it's got a greater hold on you than it had the last time. The pattern here being seven times stronger. All right, more to say on that, but we'll let that go. We've got a little bit of a gap here then, under point E, Luke 11, 29 through 32. And you say, well, what happened at 27 and 28? Well, just hold your horses. We'll get there in a moment. Those verses are verses actually that don't have a parallel elsewhere, and those are the verses we're going to focus most of our time and attention on in this episode. But still staying in the Luke sequence, we do have a parallel. In Luke 11, 29 through 32, this wicked generation seeks a sign and then the sign of Jonah and the queen of the south and different things. And then the men of Nineveh. Um, and it is interesting, not only do we have the Ninevites testifying, but the queen of the south also will rise up. Because something greater than Solomon is here. Now this is a bit of a, of a expansion. This is a little bit of a... Of a um, an ad hoc, shall we say, uh, a, a preacher that decides to ramble a little bit, uh, a pastor that says, you know what, the last time I taught this, I used an illustration. Let me go ahead and expand. Let me grab another illustration off the shelf. Let me tell another story. Let me grab another Old Testament venue, such as the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, and Solomon and things there. So what, what does the Queen of the South have to do with Jonah? In between verse 30 with Jonah and the Ninevites, verse 32, Jonah and the Ninevites, in between we got the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. They're really not related at all. But that's what happens when, as you're speaking, you're grabbing examples and you're bringing them off the top of your head and you're illustrating with other issues and so forth. It's common. This is what Jesus is doing here. We don't, we don't read through this and hold to it so originally and say, oh, contradictions with Matthew and the Bible can't be trusted. We say, no, the Bible can really be trusted. It can absolutely be trusted because Matthew was recording the Galilean messages and Luke's recording the Perian messages or the Judean messages. We, to be honest, we don't exactly have a pinpoint geography for this episode. We don't know precisely where he is at the moment. So we have verses 29 through 32. You can relate it back to Matthew 12, 39 through 42. Again, it's uh, Galilean ministry episode 25, but notice the reversed order. Notice now we've backed up to verses 39 and 42. You see that? So we've gone from 1224 to 1238 to 1225 through 30 to 1243 through 45. We're still in ministry 25 episode here, but it's backed up to 39 through 42. And yet, as far as Luke's concerned, this is all one great big sequence and progression. I piqued my own interest a moment ago. I'm going to take a peek at it. Okay, Matthew also mentioned the Queen of the South. I was thinking that Matthew had omitted the Queen of the South, but she's there too. The Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. 
I find that interesting. What role will believers have at the great white throne? Yeah, either this is now, now all judgments been given to the son. Jesus Christ himself is seated on the throne and he will issue the judgment. However, testimony is going to be offered by those that have the uh, the testimony to offer, those that can exhibit the uh, proof, as it were, or the without excuse condition. Uh, and, and in some cases, it's going to be unbelievers that will testify to that when the men of Sodom will stand up and testify against the people of Capernaum. Okay, so there you've got unbelievers testifying against unbelievers as being without excuse. So I find that to be interesting as well. I wonder how long that's going to take. Good thing we're going to be outside of space and time when it happens, right? <laughs> okay, so notice the reverse order again. It's still Galilean ministry, episode 25, but it is a reversed order from, uh, from that. Because you see episode 25 there, there, and there, but it is in a scrambled order. All right, point F, verse 33. What do we have in Luke 11:33? No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, what point is it to light a lamp and then stick it in a drawer? You know, is there, are there, is there somebody in the drawer that needs to be illuminated? Right, or you turn your flashlight on and you stick it in your pocket kind of a thing. Okay? <laughs> in fact, that's... One of the things that my phone came with, my phone came with a thing, they call it flashlight, it lights up the whole thing. And they, even in the manual, they said, you know, you can turn on this flashlight and then stick it in your pocket. And they tried to make a joke about what you might do with light in your pocket kind of a thing. And it was, it was dumb, but I appreciated what they were doing. In a sense, they were paraphrasing the scripture because no one after lighting a lamp sticks it in their pocket. Okay? It makes no sense. Unless you're, you've got seeds in there and you're trying to grow uh, uh, plants or something in your pocket. No, you put it on a lampstand. The, the purpose for the light, it needs to be positioned in such a way as to maximize the illumination benefit of what it's producing. So those who enter may see the light, like in a room. You know, the light is in the middle of the room where it's hanging from the ceiling or it's somewhere that maximizes the benefit of the light production that's coming from the uh, coming from the device, you know, imagine uh, s switching out your uh, your ceiling lights with your wall sockets. You know, you put a wall socket up there in the middle of your ceiling, you know, electrical outlet, and then you put a, a ceiling fan down there on the on the floorboard by the <laughs> what would that do? All right. Well, verse 33 says nobody would do that. And uh, and that's parallel. You'll note. Matthew 5:15, Mark 4:21, and a previous time in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 8:16. So it's twice in Luke that he's used the same story. Luke 8, and now he's doing it again here in Luke 11. So next time you you get upset with your pastor for using the same illustration he's used before, say, wait a minute, Jesus did that. All right, so your pastor is just imitating Christ, which is what he's supposed to do. So well, he gave that illustration before. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. All right. And you'll note the parallel to this is Galilean ministry, episode 27, famous parables of the kingdom, the Matthew 13 chapter, uh, the Luke 8 chapter actually came from uh, some of these early parables came from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. That's what you have there in Matthew 5:15. But in Luke 8, you've got famous parables of the kingdom. In Galilean ministry, episode 27. All right, finally then, let's see if we can get through this. The last one, in verses 34 through 36, the parallel comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 22 through 23. <clears throat> so the parallel text to Luke 11, 34 through 36. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. 
See, the, the eye is the lamp of your body. And yet it's not exhibiting, it's not, uh, it's a lamp that's focused inward, within, to your soul. It's not that your eyes are beaming light, that'd be kind of creepy, out into the room. And if the eye is clear, then light is similar to physical light, of course, that reaches the eye that allows you to see and so forth. If your eye is cloudy or darkened, then you can't see. Really, visibility is, is reflections of light anyway when it comes down to it. But take what we understand with a physical eye and physical light related across to the soul. When it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. And watch out that the light in you is not darkness. How can light be darkness? When what you take in is darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Anyway, there's a parallel to that in the Sermon on the Mount. All the way back to Galilean ministry episode number 17. So there are a number of features from the Galilean ministry episode 17, 23, 20, I'm sorry, 24, 25, 27. Did I get all that right? 17, 24, 25, 27. All those different episodes from the Galilean ministry are all now coming back again here. With a variety of accusations being leveled, all the sour grapes of, oh, he's casting out demons by the power of demons, blah, blah, blah. And he's patiently teaching, and he's patiently teaching, and he's patiently teaching. And in some respects, uh, he can't hold these guys accountable for what he taught those Galileans last year. It's a new audience, new people, new setting. Got to be patient with them like he was with the Galileans and keep teaching the truth. Okay, that's your scorecard for, uh, for these verses. Uh, as we went through now, verses 14 through 36, the ones that have no parallel are 27 and 28. And that's what most of our attention is going to be focused on. Uh, while Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. All right. And that's what we'll focus on for uh, much of our study here today and next week as well. Anybody reading King James this morning? No? All right, you are. New, that's different. The old English King James about paps and different different terms anyway nursing and that's the story here we're going to talk about nursing of infants and whatnot before we get to that though point two repeated accusations repeated accusations are useful tools useful tools of the adversary for reinforcing misperceptions when the liar wants to reinforce it when he wants to create a new perceived reality, one of his greatest tools is simply to repeat the lie over and over and over and over again. To the point where it is heard so many times, and it's told and it's retold and so forth, and it comes around, and it's just assumed to be true. Absolutely assumed to be true. Repeated accusations are useful tools of the adversary. We see this in spiritual life. We see this in theology. We see this in churches. We see this in political life. We've seen it in, in history, in military history. The, uh, the, in fact, the, uh, it was raised to an art form by the Nazis in their propaganda department. About the big lie. You tell it often enough. You tell it loud enough. You stick to the story. And, uh, and it's amazing. We saw just this very year in our own political campaigns, which is uh, kind of fun. There's YouTube videos out there and things on uh, how Obama got elected dot com and things like that. And they they interview these people that were supporters. And it's amazing their ignorance. And worse than that, it's amazing their universal acceptance of untruths that are told over and over and over and over and over again. And they, they believe it's true. See, um, as far as it goes, you know, it was this whole thing with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Bush did that. Bush did that. And, and they ever heard of Barney Frank? No, never heard of him. 
Ever heard of Chris Dodd? No, never heard of him. Who's that? See, who's Nancy Pelosi? Never heard of her. Who's, who's uh, Harry Reid? Don't know. It's, a, it's just an amazing thing. Well, I'll stay in fellowship, so don't get me there. But And the amazing thing is they ask questions about different things. Don't know about it. Don't know about it. Don't know about it. Don't know about it. Uh, but uh, which of the candidates has a pregnant teenage daughter? Oh, oh, that's Sarah Palin. <laughs> which candidate received a wardrobe for $150,000 of party funds? Oh, that was Sarah Palin. Okay. And uh, who said that they could see Russia from their house? You know, it's interesting. These 12 totally ignorant people couldn't answer legitimate political questions, but they all unanimously said, oh, Sarah Palin said she could see Russia from her house. And the truth is she never said such a thing. A Saturday Night Live comedian set made, uh, twisted one of her lines to say that, and that's what gets perceived. You see, it's not the truth, it's not the reality, but that's what's perceived to be the reality. And that's the tool of our adversary. Because he is not the truth. There is no truth in him. He is a liar and the father of lies. But if it's perceived to be true, then that becomes the reality that the cosmos system goes by. Which you understand. All right. I find here the patience of Jesus Christ to repeatedly testify to the truth. I find that to be noteworthy for our emulation. The patience of Jesus Christ. Subpoint A, the patience of Jesus Christ to repeatedly testify to the truth again and again and again and again. Noteworthy for our emulation. Because <laughs> that's, uh, I wouldn't, that's not my patience, <laughs> right? My human personality in the flesh is not known for patience. Which is a kind way of saying something I don't want to say. All right. And so if it's not something that comes naturally in terms of humanity, then where does it have to come from? It has to come supernaturally in terms of deity. It has to come through God's work in and through you for his good pleasure. It has to be a product of the Holy Spirit. And what do you know? The fruit of the Spirit, one of them is patience. All right, because it's not something that that humanity will generate. It's not something that the fallen human nature produces, even the fallen human nature redeemed. See, I think people get confused when they say, well, you know, yeah, I'm a sinner and I'm a fallen human being, but I'm a redeemed fallen human being. I have a new nature in Christ. Yes, I do have a new nature in Christ, but I have not yet. Uh, exited the old nature in Adam until such time as his body is gone. I actually have, I retain the old nature in addition now to the new nature and it's a warfare between the two. That's why we have the imperatives to put off and put on in the, in the things that happen there. So, uh, in any event, his patience, we, we need to emulate it Something else you want to take note of, and I missed this. I think, uh, I think Tom Constable highlighted this for me. Previously, it had been the scribes and Pharisees leveling these accusations. I highlighted the use of Pharisees in Matthew 12 and Matthew 9. When you go to the Mark account in Mark 3, you find reference to the scribes. And previously, it had been the scribes and Pharisees. And in chapter 9, the crowds were amazed. But the, the scribes and Pharisees were the wet blankets right in chapter 12 the crowds were amazed Ooh, could this be the son of david and it was the scribes and pharisees saying oh he's using the power of beelzebub to do this so previously the scribes and pharisees leveled these accusations now it appears to be the word on the street as it is the crowds who are hostile to jesus miracles this represents a significant progression in the animosity against jesus because it's not the leaders voicing this. The crowds themselves are repeating the word on the street. Notice in Luke eleven fourteen, he was casting out a demon. It was mute. And the demon had gone out. The mute man spoke. The crowds were amazed. But some of them, notice in the context, there are no Pharisees mentioned here. No scribes mentioned here. It is some of them. It is from within the crowds themselves. That the word on the street has gotten around. He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. 
Where did they hear that? They heard it from the Pharisees. They heard it from the scribes. Now they're repeating it because they're accepting as true the propaganda that has been promoted over and over and over and over again. I find that to be uh, significant. I appreciate Tom Constable highlighting that because uh, I had totally missed the progression from the Pharisees and scribes on the one hand. Now it is the crowds themselves that are voicing the lies of their leaders. All right, now we get to talk about the Mariolatry of the passage. Point three, a preview of the coming Mariolatry is immediately rejected. Verses 27 and 28, which I find to be a preview. We're not going to celebrate Mary, the Virgin Mary. And yes, her womb bore the humanity of Jesus Christ. And yes, her breasts nursed the humanity of Jesus Christ. But they are not blessed, nor are they happy. And the passage here is happy, not blessed. And we we need to understand the difference between uh, blessings and happiness. They are related, but not synonymous. And we're not going to celebrate Mary either in worship or in adoration or in veneration or in any other thing other than the testimony to her role in the birth of the humanity of our Savior. Again, verses 27 and 28. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice. Now, I'm not going to make a big deal out of the fact that it was a woman shouting this instead of a man shouting this, but it is an observation. It is uh, motivated and promoted by a woman in this context. Blessed or happy. The word here is happy. Makarios. Happy. And part of what we're going to do in the remainder of our time today and then all next time, all next week, is we're going to study Makarios, happiness, and Eulogetos, blessedness. And what is the difference between being blessed and being happy? And I hope it's going to be a fruitful study for us because we uh, <laughs> we have a culture that's folk well beyond culture we have a a human race <laughs> that seems to be dedicated to the pursuit of happiness, and we even have a government that's dedicated to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and it seems to be a universal human right is happiness, and what is Happiness. <laughs> what does that mean? What does it mean to be happy? What does it take to make a person happy? Or to keep them happy? If they are happy, what do you do to keep them from losing it? Kind of a thing. And if they've lost it, how do they get happy again? And uh, is happiness grounded in people? Possessions? Things? Money? Chemicals? Drugs? Alcohol? Where does happiness come from? So it's a... I think it's a fairly important study. And we'll be uh, breaking down the difference between blessings and happiness. Because you can be blessed and yet don't have the capacity to identify with the blessings and be miserable as you wouldn't believe. But you can have capacity to identify blessings and find those blessings then reflected in the happiness of your soul. That may have nothing to do with your money, possessions, health, anything like that at all. So it should be a good study. Uh, the term here is happy. Happy is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Preview of the coming Mariolatry. And the, of course, you understand when I say Mariolatry, it is the idolatry of Mary that is uh, pursued by primarily uh, the Roman Catholic Church. There are other Mariolatry practitioners as well beyond the Roman Catholic Church. There are elements of Mariolatry in the Eastern Orthodox, elements of Mariolatry in, um, in, in other venues. Remarkably enough, there are even certain sects of Islam that have a, uh, a Mariolatry component. They're by no means dominant, but they do exist, and I find that interesting as well. So the idolatry of Mary. The proposed proverb, <laughs> it doesn't catch on. But it's a proposed proverb. Blessed is the womb that bore you. Kind of like blessed are the peacemakers. Which also, by the way, that whole Beatitudes 
paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount, that's all happy. Makarios, every single one of those. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the meek. Happy and so forth. And I think sadly, though, the, uh, the, the poetry of that passage in, in the English-speaking world has been so um, locked into by the King James translation now that I think um, we're going to have a hard time changing over all those blesseds to happies, but that's what they need to be, are happies. All right, so here's a proposed proverb about a blessed womb and, a, and blessed breasts. And it's not uh, consistent with what the Lord declares. Look what the Lord declares. He says, no, no, on the contrary. On the contrary means your statement is incorrect, this statement is correct. On the contrary. He doesn't say yes and in addition to that. He says, on the contrary, stop right there. Don't repeat that. Don't say that. That is a wrong statement. Mary's womb is not happy. <laughs> All right, when it comes right down to it. Uh, I guess if you're speaking in a metaphor, a body part can be happy. But as this is uh, happiness is a capacity of soul. Happiness is, a, uh, as we point out, a reflection of blessings, but it is a soul reflection. Happiness is an expression of soul, not a body part. Unless you're speaking in metaphor, in which case body parts can be happy, but you have to understand the idiom. All right, and that's not what we're dealing with here. Look at the Lord's Declaration. Blessed or happy are those who hear the word of God and observe it. The happiness is not in identifying with the glories of Mary. Happiness comes by being a disciple of the word of God. Hearing the word of God and observing it. Living out the life of Psalm 119. Living out the life of a disciple. The abundant life of John 8. Abiding in the Word and proving to be Christ's disciple. Having the life and having the abundant life in Christ. That's where happiness comes from. Happiness is not identifying with the person of Mary. Also, the proposed proverb is contrary <laughs> to the Lord's prophesied parable that will come up in Luke 23:29. Not only does it violate the truth of the present, but it also violates the truth of what is to come. We're not to celebrate uh, in a worshipful sense. We're not to celebrate uh, motherhood. I might get in trouble this morning. Because we do celebrate motherhood. We love motherhood. Moms and babies and all this good stuff. But a day is coming. Let's look at Luke 23. All right. Because is there happiness in, in motherhood? Of course. There's Storgos love. There's human happiness. There is um, uh, human appreciation and love and excitement, not only for mothers, but for fathers, for family, for all of the human experience. Along with that, of course, comes heartache, <laughs> struggle. Because the joy of motherhood and the new baby and all the delight there, uh, you've got to remember that as hard as you can when they get to be teenagers. <laughs> and they think, <clears throat> okay. And then adult children doing a, dumb things as adults. And you have a hard time remembering that infant joy of the newborn in some respects. There's also an aspect of prophecy when tribulation comes upon this earth. And we find it in Luke 23. And here's another proverb that's going to be, this one's going to take hold. This one's going to be true. Days are coming. And this is uh, looking ahead to tribulation and second advent and the days of judgment and wrath upon uh, Israel. And, uh, and they're all boo-hooing that he's going to go and die on the cross. And, and yeah, that's, that's a cause for sadness. But beyond that, Jesus turning and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why? Behold, days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren. There's a proverb for you. Who's going to say that? 
Who would, who would use this figure of speech? Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never, bur- that never nursed. Okay? This is identical language and the terminology vocabulary of what we have in our chapter today. Well, why is that? Why would it be a blessing to, to be barren? Why would it be a blessing to not have a baby? Well, because of the evil that's coming upon the babies at that time. Because of the evil that's coming upon the population at that time. And uh, begin to say to the mountains, fall on us. The hills cover us. And, uh, you know, woe if you're, tr- if you're in childbirth. If you have a child at that day and you're trying to flee to the hills. There's different aspects of that as well. Anyway, there's more to study on the Mariolatry of this. Um, we won't get into today. I, what I want to do, and we'll do next week, even without the aspects of Mariolatry, anyone with a Makarios misorientation is facing trouble in temporal life. When you misorient to what makes you happy, what I call a Makarios misorientation, and and I'll just leave you with this. You can jot it down and save it for next week. Makarios. M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S. Makarios. And I think the misorientation not only can be with the wrong object, but also misorientation can be a confusion between temporal life happiness and spiritual life happiness. Because we can get happy in earthly things, and it has nothing to do with spiritual life, makarios. You know, your football team wins a game, and you have football happiness. Your baseball team wins a World Series, you have baseball happiness. you got 30 major league teams, and there's one that can win the World Series every year, so one fan base has baseball happiness. 29 Fan bases don't. And they, you know, quote the Dodgers, uh, we'll get them next year kind of a thing, right? Well, <laughs> what are we living for? Baseball happiness? Football happiness? Temporal life happiness? Political happiness? An awful lot of ha- political happiness on election night. There's also some political sadness on election night. There'll be some political happiness coming up on inauguration day. Let's not confuse temporal life happiness. And in some respects, childbirth is temporal life happiness in terms of family capacity and so forth. Let's not confuse temporal life happiness with eternal life happiness, the makarios we can have. Is it, is it exciting when a, when a baby gets born? You bet. I love babies. Babies are great. But when an unbeliever comes to faith in Jesus Christ... And a spiritual baby is born, not by water and the blood, but by the spirit uh, from the heavenly birth, the birth from above. And this is a life that is for the glory of Jesus Christ for all eternity. Oh, <laughs> that I can rejoice in with Makarios happiness. There I have not only Kara, earthly joy, but I have Makarios, spiritual, eternal happiness. You know, when a new human being comes onto the planet, yes, there's joy, but then there's also the immediate prayer request. That's a sinner. That's an unbeliever. That's a, that's a little ragamuffin that when they grow up, they've got to come to Christ. Because if they don't, they're going to hell. And that's a, kind of a harsh thought with a little, you know, uh, little infant newborn. But they need Christ because they're born in sin. I don't care how cute they are, how bubbly they are. They're in Adam. They need Christ. So we'll talk next week about joy and about happiness and about the Makarios happiness, which can't come uh, in the arms of a woman and it can't come in a bottle and it can't come through money. It can't come through success. Uh, I've known some very, very wealthy people with very, very large houses. And they are as miserable as the day is long. They wouldn't know Makarios if it slapped them in the face. So we need to find out what is this Makarios? What's the source of Makarios? All right, and that's where we'll be next week. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the close of this year, Father, as we see 
uh, our final teaching sessions in 2008, and we see uh, we look ahead to what we anticipate in 2009. Father, it's just a, a day to acknowledge that you are a God of grace. We don't deserve to be here. Uh, all that you have done is is overwhelming, and uh, the things that we're yet to watch you unfold. Uh, we're just speechless, Father. How can we imagine the glories of what you are providing? So we thank you for it. We acknowledge it comes from you, and we we uh, we reject any human merit or claim of anything that we think we might have earned or deserved. Father, we've deserved none of it. It is your grace that has made provision. We thank you and we praise you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.